Podcast. Oh, God, jeez. What do you did? <laughs> it's supposed to rhyme. Meh. Overrated. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Well. The Crash Chords Podcast, right. if you didn't realize, well, by clicking on whatever you did to get here. They realized from, from this spiel. I'm Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Um, up front, I want to talk a little bit about what I did this weekend. Um, I had the benefit of being able to go to the Warp Tour, which I had not been to in five years, uh, so half a decade. This time you went as press, though. I did. Um, I want to thank Upfront, MC Large, for offering me his uh, available guest ticket to come to the show. Um, he was a pleasure to hang out with. He was stoked to see me. He remembered me from the interview. Um, we chatted for a while, got some photos, and bullshitted. He uh, said hi to the rest of the team and is interested on in coming on this show if he's ever in New York for more than a day or two. Um, so I hung out with him for a bit. I got to see his set. Um, before that... I got to see a non-gimmicky Jewish rapper with the best name ever, Kosha Dills. And he is a um, Jewish rapper. This, he was actually, at, this was at Warp Tour? At Warp Tour. Okay. There's a lot of rap at Warp Tour, but they have like a punk aesthetic. And he did. He, uh, he had his Warp Tour shirts that he was selling were all in Hebrew, but it had like the logo and stuff, which was actually pretty awesome. I'm kind of picturing Panless Parker because to me, he's the Jew with the punk aesthetic. But the go-to Jew with the punk aesthetic. Fair enough, but he doesn't play punk music or rap music. True, but he used to, as he told us. That's true. Um, it was on our show, episode 63. Check it out. But so he was really good, and I connected with him, gave him my card. He wants to be on the podcast. He's local to Jersey, uh, but he's on tour with Dwarf Tour. Um, I picked up his newest record, um, which I've enjoyed since I've been listening to it. I also, of course, then following him, I saw MC Lars, who was fantastic. Um, he's a spiel for his song, Mr. Raven, where he brings the same nine-year-old girl, although I'm sure she was younger when she first started doing it, to come sing back up with him on stage. And it's adorable and amazing. I've seen it at two New York shows he's done so far. Now, I have a question. As press, did you show up wearing a fedora with a feather in it? So technically, and also the giant over So technically, camera. technically, I wasn't press. I didn't have a badge. I just oh. got. Uh, I had a guest ticket under an artist, so I was a welcome guest. So okay. It's not the same thing. Okay. Um, Next time, we have to get you some sort of everyday man, kind of a hat, circa 1930s, with a large sign that says press. Exactly. And some, I don't know, just plain black, large-rimmed glasses. As well as uh, uh, suspenders for your shirt and tie. Stereotyping. I was gonna, Stereotyping I was, press I was gonna, people. <laughs> I was going to finalize that with a onesie unitard underneath that was... I got it. You were going for Superman. I, I was sticking it. with the camera, with the flash that goes like well over your head. Um, that said, though, I did cover the show, or at least the bands that I saw. The plan is to do a write-up. Let's see if I can actually own yeah, up to yeah, that. You work on that. Um, but then after MC, um, MC Lars, I also saw um, a band called Tat, who I've seen before. They're a female-fronted punk band that's true punk rock, like old school, cross the pond. She's actually British. The whole band is. But she was playing an acoustic set because the rest of the band was overseas, fine-tuning their album coming out in 2016. 
Um, what was very cool and that I enjoyed is I connected with her because she saw that I was one of the few people in the front row singing along to every song that wasn't a new song. And so she connected with me. She saw that I was doing it. And so then when I came up afterwards, she gave me a hug. She thanked me. We chatted for a while. Um, and I told her about both podcasts. She's stoked to at least phone in for autographs. So I'm in the process of working that out. So I want to thank Tatiana as well as MC Lars and Kosher Dills for their time and for getting to chat and hopefully having them on the show again soon. Um, or for the first time for those who hadn't been previously. Yeah, yeah they figure out. Well, uh, that's all very neat. Uh, on, on uh, I'm not jealous, but John should be because he was invited. He, well, and, yes, and I did. Uh, MC Lars did apologize about that. Apparently, Warped Door cracked down on the guest tickets. All the artists only got one. They were supposed to get a few, and it just it didn't work out. I forgive him. <laughs> How egalitarian of you, John. I will say, though, not having to pay for a ticket and leaving after only a few bands because of how brutally hot it was on Sunday was kind of nice. Because in the past, I've gone through that and had wasted money because, you know, you pay for an all-day festival, you want to stay for the whole thing. Obviously. But anyway, I digress. So that was a blast. Um, I posted some photos on our Facebook page, so please check them out. Um, you know, all the artists were really great, and I enjoyed the music that I saw or heard, as, the, as it were. Well, both. Both, technically, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. On a technicality. That's, that's you do it at a concert. Anyway, I've uh, uh, spieled enough. It's time to let someone else spiel for a while. Steve, please tell us about our album for All this right. week. I, the resident spieler. Today is my pick, and that pick is Damage and Furies by Square Pusher. So, Square Pusher is the alias of Tom Jenkinson, a UK-based artist known for a highly avant-garde interpretation of techno, burgeoning out into what is generally called acid techno. Now, as you might guess from the name, some might say that the genre acid techno is inherently avant-garde. These artists strive for rapid-fire, moment-by-moment investment. The semiest of quavers in the course of just a millisecond is just as important as the whole. Something I very much appreciate, but they also might sacrifice consonants a lot of the time, sometimes perhaps sacrificing tonal centers entirely. After all, techno, even without the acid, is often focused on rhythm, which means its nearest acoustic equivalent is that of a pure drum solo. Imagine that rare, penultimate moment in the course of a concert where all the other instruments cease and breathe and yield to the drummer, who is now front and center and free to do whatever he otherwise couldn't do, at least not without taxing the reactive capabilities of all others involved. It's an eerie, almost vacuum of a moment in concerts, and that's because rhythmic exploration is a whole nother frontier to most people. Apart from the larger-than-life figures like Gene Krupa, Max Roach, Neil Peart, John Bonham, or Ringo Starr. I actually knew a bunch of those names. <laughs> well, minus, oh, minus one. Brief maybe. relative segue, I watched Hard Day's Night for the first time as an adult recently. A lot funnier as an adult. Oh, yeah. No, um, no, all those movies are Alex comedies for, now. Alex, for his birthday, got Alex Bell of the Wasties, got uh, Hard Day's Night on Blu-ray, the new upgraded version, the re like retouched version, as, as a birthday present, so we watched it. My favorite line is, he's a dirty old man. Anyway. He's so clean. I know. <laughs> So apart from the figures I just mentioned, for the most part, until certain branches of electronica took root, on a discographical scale, this vacuum has been relatively unexplored. Since that time, though, many diverse communities have developed around it, despite the fact that they use, of course, artificial means to do so. Often these communities start out fairly underground, some might say they're still pretty underground, but there are giants among them, and one among them is Tom Jenkinson, aka Squarepusher. 
Now, obviously, having been around since 1994, Tom Jenkinson has gone through many phases. He is quite prolific, now with 16 albums under the Square Pusher name, not counting a plethora of EPs, singles, and collaborations. Within this work, you'll find that there are times when he's more ambient, times when he's more consonant, and there are times when you can just barely keep up with him. He has many influences from jazz, he's a bassist, that should be noted, to metal, to other electronica artists, one of which we reviewed earlier this year, and that's Aphex Twin. So let's see what he conjures up on his latest experiment, Damage and Furies. It starts off with the first track of Store Iglis. And we're going to butcher some of these these names here. It's just, it's no, just going to happen. I think that's the only one that, that, that might get butchered. I'm, yeah. I issue a challenge to our audience, if they're so inclined. If you do know a story behind these titles, we've tried. We haven't really found anything. If there's a story or a language behind these titles, please let us know. Well, it's very consistent with his, his earlier titles. I have known Square Pusher, I probably should mention, since around the early, mid-2000s. And he's and always done this kind of naming convention? Yeah. I mean, even it's in some of the... the titles themselves, like Buzz Caner, and then some of them are just like oddball. Th- they almost look like they're, it's its own language, or borrowed from a language. You, I can't quite tell. You'd previously mentioned Aphex Twins. He, twin, he also did the same thing. So. He did the same thing. They were more numerical. They right. almost looked like it was just a stray file on his hard drive, but these are yeah, a little more straightforward. So we get, the, we get our intro to this track is a thumping bass beat, something you think you'd hear in a club, you know, that kind of heavy rhythm that is in a lot of trance and, and club music. But it, it diverges from that fairly quickly with a, a tinny kind of cymbal sound to go with it, which kind of gives it more. I a don't little know, bit, something. a little bit higher in the attack range yeah. than what you'd normally expect from just a steady trance-oriented introduction. This, when when you start working with that faux piano, gets introduced. A screeching sweep gets introduced, and that becomes one of the main melodic components of the song itself. There's already different tools being used here than what you would expect in more mainstream club and trance-oriented music. Well, I do want to talk about this split between the intro and what would be perceived as the main section here. Because to start out, you get what I bet anyone outside the techno field would probably call like an industrial backdrop. It's marked by these steady impacts, although Perhaps from a trance perspective, you couldn't exactly call the opening rhythm like a fist pump, because while it has the whole the depth and the resonance, it's far too frantically paced, almost like a half-broken machine. Something that's desperately trying to catch the right gear, but it just can't do it, so it's like caught in a loop. I also kind of pictured like a, a gif of something repeated over and over. That's how I kind of interpret these opening 20 seconds. And that's one of the main reasons why industrial is a word often associated uh, both thematically and musically towards electronica music. Nowadays, since we have a lot of electronics in our industry, and just from the fact that everything sounds a little bit off, a little bit unnatural, like robots, like assembly lines, a lot of this sort of gets pigeonholed into it. A little that bit. That said, once things like that screechy, high, breathy violin comes in, a whole new aspect sort of gets introduced to the song itself. It becomes semi-natural. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost violinish, but it's, it's, it, it is natural to the point that the way I said before, you know, how he might lack consonants or have consonants. Well, this is an example of consonants. It's, you could flat out call it a hook if you want. I mean, the resolution here at like around 30 seconds goes into what could be called a hook, as if the machine from earlier did finally 
catch and, and grab hold of something tangible. So what we get here is something more on his consonant side, and frankly, it would probably be reminiscent of a more like tonal safety that is trance, if it weren't for the fact that you have this continuously reshaping rhythmic backdrop in the background. That That's something that, that really stays close to acid techno almost throughout the entire album. That and the fact that they're also um, producing high attacking beats. These high attacking beats, very clipped either in the beginning or the end, really add an unusual flavor to what I, I, I do know as a standard percussion line in electronica in general. Right. Because it's clipped and in a lot of cases feels compressed, though the notes themselves, the tones themselves, are complete. They're not warped in any way. They're just pushed together a little bit quicker than what most people are attuned to. Yeah. I think also to note here, what's important about the intro versus this now very trance kind of rhythm and, and structure that we're getting, is it's very high energy and it feels something, I mean Steve kind of phrased it perfectly, like almost on the safer side I guess of trance, like this kind of, it's a format that I can formulate a brain structure around. Like I've heard not this, but something reminiscent of this before. The reason I'd say that is probably because texture-wise, it is much more open, much mm -hmm. more inviting, and it's it's familiar since, like you'd find in trance, and the kind yeah. of trance that might play in, in halls and such. Also, the melody kind of just falls down F-sharp minor. It's very easy to get on board with, despite that the home chord centers more in D major, so you kind of get a little bit of this Lydian feel. Still, that's very lighthearted and very free-flowing. But also, very soon, you get this trade-off in the primary instrument. The synth that falls down F-sharp minor soon becomes less prominent, and then a much higher instrument really like, takes on a new role as the melody, despite that the former still keeps going as the only tangible figuration in the piece. After all, it is very easy to latch onto a scale. Mm -hmm. But that secondary instrument, though a little more sparse, I think is far more playful, and it really reacts against the rhythmic backdrop. Um, it kind of alters like between accents on the downbeat, then suddenly it's on the upbeat, and though it's very evasive, it is still very consonant. But that's not what I'm used to with Square Pusher. He has a tendency to really go off. Then again, this is just track one. And there is a little bit of that going off aspect as the song moves along. True. Even before this, I guess I want to call it my cruising piano synth. Only because of its association with some of my favorite, like, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, for me, songs when I was driving, like Darude Sandstorm, a song that honestly will be my penultimate driving song. <laughs> Sweeps, very drawn out, reminiscent of piano work or even other uh, uh, upright type of pieces. It's long, it's drawn out in a lot of aspects. But even before this comes in, we get a subtle glitch work done. Yeah, little that bit starts of... to me around like a minute 12 or mm -hmm. so. It's like Actually, in, in one sense, it's a little bit more similar to trance, just in the fact that you have those like cutouts of layers, and then yeah. you, you maintain certain things. Like the figuration will just cut out entirely, but then the melody will rattle on, and then the beatbox rattles on. And then we get that uh, sort of a transition, but it, it, that could also very well be like a secondary theme here. Still, it kind of has the air of a transition. At this point, it was still kind of safe to me. It kind of reminded me of a group called Ratatat, which they, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, we all know they tend to do something a lot more melodic, you know, with yeah. their their brand of electronica. Well, Ratatat's, the thing I like about Ratatat on a slight tangent is that their electronica tends to fit a more rock and roll structure. Like, mm -hmm. I could easily kind of get a sense of a rock and roll song from that, whereas this, 
Well, that's actually a precursor to some stuff we get later, but mostly this fits very firmly in acid techno. All right, but to go back to what John said, in this, this sort of hazy region between, like, minute 12, where we get that transition, up closer to maybe, like, 2.45, we, the, the primary melody kind of, like, re-enters, and then suddenly the beatbox just seems so much more dominant to me. The melody is just, like, smothered by the beatbox completely. And this is kind of where Square Pusher lies. It was actually a, a deceptively consummate piece until that point. And then rhythmically, we're just off on an acid trip. This is where it might be more appropriate to invoke the genre glitch as a descriptor, in fact. Yeah, this kind of bug-in-the-machine aspect was subtly introduced in that, that transitional piece, but as time goes on, especially in that reintroduction of the melody... Um, with these sweeping, what I call the pseudo-pianos, <laughs> is is just built a little bit here, there, and everywhere, and interferes with everything. And that's one of the things that I, I love about Glitch, and I love about really old-school uh, experimental acid. Right. Where they start, like, just devolving things, just taking things apart, in the sort of way that you expect breakdowns in more classic-oriented rock and roll back to classical, here the breakdowns in this sort of a piece are the machine failing, the falling apart of the actual tones themselves. This is one of the more iconic aspects of what you would get with Glitch, what you would get with Acid. Right, and we get that here and we get it even more so later on the album. But but the funny thing is that this track is, as far as, if you were just speaking about the sectional portions of it, there's still a lot here that can be predicted. For instance, it doesn't stay here. At some point, we, we sort of go back to the A section and then we have our full-on melody again at that point return to the ballroom, whatever. But beyond that, we kind of move away. It's just this back and forth, back and forth, which is still very A, B, A, B. You could liken it to verse, chorus, verse, chorus, if there were lyrics. But there are moments within this where he kind of like hints at the the complexities that he's capable of, which isn't to say that anything going on here isn't complex. I just know from my knowledge of Square Pusher that this is the, the tip of the iceberg. So just as an example, I especially like the point closer to like 3 minutes 37 seconds, I'll note the timestamps exactly here, where for the first time we do actually have this steady pump for about maybe 20 seconds. The, the, the steadiest thing so far, as if like the frenetic character of the piece just had to align for a moment to work out a tick. And then sure enough it starts breaking apart. It maintains control for just a little bit too long, going really, really fast, and then it starts overlapping itself after a few beats, as if like the metronome had just broken and the beats are imperfect. Then you realize it's all part of a larger plan. The imperfection aligns with the triplets, and then they align with more double-time uh, rhythm, and it, and it all just builds up to the big reprise that you get in the outro. It was a really great, like, you know, return. But one of the things that was actually missing in that outro was that... A sweepy, screechy violin melody that was no longer present. It actually had taken a backseat and so, sort of fallen off the face of the earth. It, it was showing some evolution as far as the beat work was going, as the as the rhythm is going, but also chaos at the same time. The lack of that melody really promoted that chaos that they introduced. Yeah, that may have, in fact, been even earlier, because I, I, I seem to recall that the melody was going on in this particular section, and it was just kind of like, you know, hammering it out, like the, the final anthem, as it were. But there were sections earlier where it did cut. I think my biggest problem with this track uh, was mostly that emotionally I didn't really... F like, I couldn't find a setting, I couldn't find an emotion, I couldn't... F other than, like, the chaos that you mentioned, like, there wasn't a clear path of the song. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, I'm just saying, for me, 
there was I was kind of um, intrigued by the haze, but also kind of lost in it. I couldn't really find anything as far as a narrative, a setting, you know, any kind of story or character other than the music itself being a character. But I, I, like, I couldn't really get a clear picture. I have two points on that, but I think John does too. <laughs> I have my well. I I saw this as more of an an actual kind of uplifting, but but dangerous introduction to the album itself. The way everything seems to orient towards a rise. Everything seems to orient towards a sweeping melody. Taking that and then introducing that chaos, it's, it, it is uplifting in several ways. It is promoting energy and a more favorable outcome, but because of the chaos it introduced, because of the, the fractured nature of the outro, it definitely wasn't a pure idea. Yeah, uh, let me be clear. I felt the high energy. It was there. It was obvious. It's just I didn't feel much more you detail than that. Yeah, you don't see like a, a big emotional center just in energy itself. No, it's... and I, I I hear you on that. Uh, the two points that I was going to bring up is, in fact, one I thought that John was going to bring up. He didn't quite bring it up, and that's the idea that behind this whole like acid techno thing, I don't feel that like it, it necessarily aims to go toward a specific emotion. Sure. John was actually mentioning this earlier that a lot of times it just aims to fuck with you, and that's it. It just it just screws with your mind as you right. go. But the second point I was going to make is the fact that. This first track, because it's more trance-oriented, and it's not yet what I'd call full-blown acid, because we have that really, really constant melody, I, I find that really I'm not even at that stage yet. Sure. I'm not even at the point where it's like blowing my mind every second. Instead, it's I liken it more to the feel, though not in, in every technical element, that I would get from a trance uh, piece heard in the midst of a ballroom atmosphere, you know? And there could very well be, if, there, if it was a little more regular, there could be a fist-pumping environment to this. And for that reason, additionally, I guess I don't feel a lot more, because I never associated that with much else other than energy. Yeah. I think that, you know, also as an intro track, it didn't really have to do much more than this. I feel like it did accomplish its position on the album. It's just, again, I was looking for something a little more and didn't really get it. It doesn't really hurt it a lot. It's just something I definitely noticed. Yeah. No. It was. It was. It was definitely fun to me, but it was a little bit of a safe opener, I yeah. think, at least for what I know of his work. So from there, let's go on to track two, Baltang Ort. Now, I gotta say, this was a trolling if I've ever been trolled, because Baltang Ort begins with a solemn, almost a dignified air. It's a stark con contrast from what we just experienced. For about three measures, it's pure ambience. I felt like I was either in a mountain monastery or like the open cosmos. And then that fourth measure hits. Ra 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 ra. It's essentially what happens for just one measure. And then it goes back and the cycle starts over again. We're back in the cosmos for three measures. And then ra 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 ra. It's the well, best way I could I could describe it because that sound bite really sounds like like a, a vocalizer um patched through and just repeated over and over and over again and then cut and spliced really sharply at the ends of each measure. Well, that kind of gives it, like, so this I found kind of a setting or sort of a feeling. Like, that com combination that you described gave it this kind of haunting nature, but not, like, like horror movie haunting. More like haunting in a kid's cartoon. Like, a little bit cheeky, a little bit goofy, but definitely creepy. And I think it was the mix of that ambient with that odd soundbite kind of really gave it a, like it gave it a feel of some kind, something stronger than I for sure got in the previous track. Yeah, no, I mean, with me, it was just hard to kind of reimmerse myself in the whole open cosmos environment after that, sure. given that I'd been trolled. I mean, it's not that I have like any misgivings about my expectations here. I know that he's going to pull this stuff on me, but I guess the split in character from like the three measures of one thing to one bizarre measure of something else, it was rather pronounced. 
That said, it's not hard for me to appreciate the comedy here. I really like the Cosmos segment, but maybe it did need some interruption. Otherwise, it would be ambient music, and that's not why people are going to Square Pusher. No, well, for sure not. One of the more defining features of uh, acid-oriented, acid house, acid techno in general is the idea of squelching, which, to describe it in layman's terms, is the sound a finger makes on glass, that kind of a noise. Like a squeegee sound, too. Yeah, exactly. That's, a, that's another way of putting it. it. It tends to be a high attack in the beginning, a clipped at beginning part, something that really does put your eardrums over the edge at times, fading out fairly quickly most of the time, but compressing cutting, shaping the actual sound a little bit more than what you normally hear. Basically, you're within that single note or si- single tone, you're changing the pitch or changing the volume pretty dramatically over a quarter of a second, if that much. Right. And you heard this in what section here? In how the rah-rah-rahs were being done. Just the nature of cutting them short, not really having a beginning or an end to the flow of that noise to make them feel very clipped. Yeah. It's something that I, I, I would definitely equate towards his, his sound. Yeah, no, I could, I could probably equate that too. For me, it was just really, really random. And it doesn't stick around that long either. Finally, once it goes through a few cycles, we're kind of out of that, and then we're, we're in more spastic territory. Yeah. The acid starts stepping in here. Around like 1 minute, 19 seconds, this is what I would start to call a, a part B, because it's a lot more spastic. The only real constant, in fact, is maybe the tone. The same tone that we heard in the very, very beginning during the sections that were more open and more and more eerie, the, the cosmos sections. And just these really three tones here, although there they, they went a little further. Here it's reduced itself just to three tones, F sharp, down to F, down E flat. Just kind of like it did in the beginning. It's just this ambient thing. But now it, it starts expanding that a little bit by adding some some extra texture. Here we get the F sharp, then suddenly it, it, it this outward motion down to F and A simultaneously, then out to the full fifth E flat and B flat simultaneously. I love that outward motion here just as, as, a, as a, a harmony, the only harmony that we have in this piece at this point, because beyond that, it's, again, pure glitch. Well, it's not quite glitch. It's more of a free-for-all with the snare drum and cymbal sounds that he's using. Yeah. Everything that's going on there... We'll stick with acid techno. (laughs) (laughs) It's driving the track. It's Mm -hmm. driving and directly contrasting the the melodies and the harmonies that are going on with those sweeps. This is some of the more interesting things for me, where you're focusing on the larger tones. Me, I love this speed. Oh, they're not not very large. They're, in fact, not prominent at all. There are parts where just after, you know, goes through that cycle of of, of notes, and they're very, they're in the background, too. They're, They're weak. They, they have the same weakness as they did in the beginning when they were unaccompanied by any rhythm. But now they're dominated by rhythm, and frankly, they, they really pale uh, They pale in comparison. They fail to, to dominate back. They fail to provide any character apart from this just constancy that, that holds true from the very, very beginning. Instead, now, though, we're just stuck in pure rhythmic territory. Whether you want to call it glitch, you want to call it acid techno, it's just, it's got, it, it has direction of its own now. And you're more invested, I agree completely, in, in that, you know, the intricacy in the course of the measure and how he extends certain notes, uh, extends certain pitter-patters, all that sort of thing. And for all of its spasticity, is that mm-hmm. a word? 
Yeah, I'm not sure what that is a word. I've used it. Okay. That doesn't mean it's important. The actual beat work that's going on here, the rhythm work that's going on here, is regular. It just doesn't sound regular because of the changes to pitch he's really fooling around with. And that's one of my, that, that I love. I love fooling around with pitch with these parts. Yeah. Well, what's really great also is that at times it almost takes on the air of a beatboxer, just the way that kind of percussion sounds. And it really kind of feels that way towards the end, too, because you get this kind of super speed percussion outro that really does feel like it. the electronic tones are reminiscent of something a electronic tone beatboxer, say, Korean FX would do, where he sounds like a robot. Yeah, that was at the tail end, and that's what we really, really wait for. But amidst that, there's a lot of back and forth here. Times, again, when it's pure percussion, times uh, when it's, you do just get those, the tones themselves, Mm -hmm. and they, I do remember the moment that you were talking about, John, uh, around where, like, the tones start kind of becoming a little more warped, a little more dense, and they start taking on a higher register. But even still, they tend to get completely smothered by the, the rhythm, which just gets more speed. and more and more complex. Yeah, it's, it's speed, again, through the lens of the fact that there's a lot happening in the course of just a single measure. But there's also other little elements, like around 319, there's a section where, for a time, the, the motif is completely absent, and the remaining percussion is almost dainty. It just features these like pops that get clipped and interrupted, like a lot of like metallic sounds in in the midst here. It's, it was a strange interlude for the piece. I thought you know to, it's it's like the re- percussion is in some sense trying to pursue exactly what those tones had just pursued, and but and it, it does it in a marvelous way. And this to me is is pure sound art right here. Um, and then after that, the tonal motif comes back, and you could almost call that a full on A prime, the same outward motion. And then we work toward the closing material, where we even bring back the, the vocalizer effect, the rah rah. And then you get that closing section, which is which just is the phenomenal. Fastest. It's the this would this would occur, and this is what Matt was talking about specifically around five minutes, nineteen seconds. The dynamics of this final section are phenomenal it's it's actually a lot more regular but very high energy and the accents are riveting it's, it's almost like a racing game where you're just like in the zone kind of reminded me of the soundtrack for need for speed back in the late See, 90s but i would do one better because of the 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 style of this it would remind me of the speed racer live action movie bright colors fast pace like it's just it really felt that way like things were just bright lines passing by well, I don't only equate it to the game because I feel like I'm immersed at this point. You're well, just you're just focused. Yeah, yeah. Driving may become a theme for this album itself. It's hard to differentiate one to the, the other word, in a lot of times. I would use the word theme loosely. If you want to crash a lot, I mean, <laughs> let's go to track three here. This is Rat Rake Fire Two. This was fun. This so- was just. Absolutely fun. You have a description for this opening, which I want to hear. So, so the the thing that I uh, first I tried to create equate it to like a thirty two bit sound because I always take electronic sounds back to video games, but I went one better. As you the, do. <laughs> the exact sound that this intro is making, at least for the first ten seconds or so, maybe a little longer by itself, is the sound of an old school ream printer. So you like the ink printers that had reams of paper with holes on the side that you had to pull off. The 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 kind of you know, sound where we go and the structure of this whole intro follows and has a very similar sound bite to that. The ones with the, with the full on like 16 pin connector and yeah. you can, you, pre-USB. Ah, I love that era. And it really is like the, the most apt uh, I can't think of anything else to equate this to, frankly, if you're just going on the tone. And the tone is pretty constant. It's that same exact sound over and over and over. And even the rhythm seems to match the rhythm that you'd expect from that kind of printer. It starts with this, like, evasive 
two-beat triplet. It's three over the course of two, and then the resonating accent on the three, and it lingers over the course of beats three and four. It lingers, echoes, and then finally disperses for the remainder of the measure. Also, on the first beat, there's a secondary uh, sound bite. Th th that's probably one of the few other pieces of instrumentation on this entire track, and that's uh, this, like, wailing guitar sound. Mm -hmm. Just a single note, I noticed that it was a D, and it trails off. It's, it's just gone after a while. For like eight measures or so, it's gone. But the next time it comes back, then suddenly it, it, it wails outward again, but this time it pitch bends upwards, which is kind of a great element of texture, I thought, because it stands out in a crowd, and it adds this, this almost this like pain to the course of this track, and it appears in small doses. The main element, though, always comes back to that rhythm, always comes back to that ream printer sound. And this is, it's the craziest part, because it progressively gets more intricate. I love when it's just, like, eighth notes. It feels even more awkward, because when it follows the triplet, it, it's, it's, I love how decisively it just leaves, and we go from that, like, triple meter to duple meter. And then when it comes down to pure sixteenth notes, I love the dynamics of the staccato and the decay and the reverb. It's like a machine gun. It's outstanding. And it keeps these evolving rhythms throughout the song. It sits with it for a long time. Uh, one third of the track is almost the same thing from beginning to, to end. Because yeah. of the pitch changing, because of the slight variances he's throwing in there, it really does feel like a lot more is going on than what's actually going on. And this, this is probably the closest to true 1980s, mid-80s style of... Uh, Acid House. When it first came out, one of the two features was you take one single line and you just mess with the pitch over the course of it. In the concept, other... I'd agree with you, but it, as far as execution, I'm inclined to think this is something wildly new here. The other aspect is also a conceptual idea that it's keeping true to, which is simplicity. Keep your lines uncluttered. Keep your layers simple. Don't do 15, 20 layers. We're talking about two, maybe three, like, solid layers going on right here. Because of how much is going on with the pitch change, it sounds like there's a lot more. Yeah, it's the, the ream printer, the guitar, and there was something else, but it was pretty, it was pretty benign. Well, the thing is, also, is this is the first track where we're really getting a setting or storytelling, but it's simply being told by mostly that one soundbite at different speeds. And that's what's fascinating, is that it goes from just being a school, you know, an old school ream ink printer to that in a natural disaster and then that in hyperspace hyperspeed like it just the dynamics and the changes kind of take it all over the place it's actually a brilliant display of sound art if you really think of it in that yeah. in those terms because then it's like it's actually just printed you something like it's it's going through all these different rhythms in order to well, give you this like kind of dotted you know you have to like sort of go out of focus in order to see what it is but then it's very very crisp and you can only get that to look at this track at a glance you know, it, you just start, you're on the ride until it's complete. And if you're going to look at it as, as this sort of like cluttering and compressing of the tones together to go to eighth notes, to go to 16 notes, it's speeding up. Yeah. It's a fast forwarding kind of effect. And it's, it comes off kind of mischievous about it. it it's, it's a little cheeky all said and done to feel like this thing is doing its this printer or anything like that, if that's the setting we're looking at, it's doing its job over and over and over again. It's the same job over and over again, but it's not boring about it. No. It still remains fresh. It's throwing in little accents. Instead of periods, maybe it's printing out an exclamation point when it shouldn't be. There's, a, There's something going on there that's that does have a, a lot of 
depth for well, something that might be inanimate. There's something else going on. It's something that's fairly subtle, and it's almost it's almost besides the point, but it's very important, and that's the the, the tone and the chordal centers here. Because despite the, the the rhythm is really what just dominates here, but within that, it's kind of soloing. Like there, if you look past the rhythm, there is a lot of just like inner, you know, going up the scale, going down the scales, a lot of skipping over, but for the most part, a lot of it is on generally one chordal area, and it's just sort of freestyling in its midst. Still, there's a lot, it, it, it's intricate in that in the place. It couldn't just, it couldn't have the same reaction, I think, if it were a little more dissonant. Instead, this is pretty straightforward from a tonal's perspective, and that keeps you more invested on the rhythm. I think that's probably what hooked me the most, is it's a rare case where we get something that is repetitive but not in the way we're used to it's yeah. repeating a tone but varying so many other things that you don't get bored with it in fact i wanted more of it and this wasn't a short track either but i was just i was heavily invested in what this built and it was the first time really on the album where i really kind of got sucked in to everything it offered it's I think hypnotic the, yeah yeah i think it's the first time i also shushed you yeah probably while we were listening because i was exuberant and, about it yeah and i was making you be quiet because i wanted to listen i was just in the zone man <laughs> but yeah and i mean i mean even later like by around like 327 that's when it really takes off that's when mm -hmm. you can't i can't even I'm, it's, it's not worth like breaking down in terms no. of like you know oh yeah there's triplets it's just it's on a freestyle uh runaway train at that point but yeah it's it's Tonally, there is a character here. It's just, it's it's his acid trip or a nightmare of sorts because, it, frankly, toward the end of this track, it lost the tonal center ages ago. And and this is what I, I what I'm speaking of here is specifically the guitar because that is what really just like makes it seem more dissonant than the actual tones that the that the printer sound is making. Because by that point, it's just it's it's awkward. It's you feel tense by the very tail end. I'm going to put you on the spot right now, but I can't remember his name, so I have to. Office Space, the character that Steven Root plays, who can't find his stapler. No, oh, Milton. Milton. This is the soundtrack <laughs> to Milton's worst nightmare. Uh, okay, so we're in Milton's mind. Yes. Dur in, yeah. the, During like, an the night nightmare. No, the that night before he's about to burn the place down. Yes. It could, it could even be because he's supposed to be the one everybody kicks, a hysterical nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, I think that might even work even better with my mischievous idea. Well, I love how we just took Square Pusher's concept and made it in a cubicle somehow. Uh, let's uh, go to track four. We were already printer, all right. Yeah, well, it it wasn't a we just kind of went from there. Let's go to track four. Contenjas or Contenjas. Or cotton I'm jazz. Well, I'm willing to not pronounce that J. Yeah, I'll the, go with that. This is the first time on this acid, acid album that I feel an acid intro. Right. The 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 beginning to this is disoriented and kind of trippy and confusing. This is a strong emotional connection too. Like it's definitely meant to put you either in a state where you feel like you're on something, or enhance it if you are already on something. It doesn't last long. Yeah, it's about 30 seconds, but it's enough to kind of really kind of make you feel out of sorts. The fact that it's kind of switched around, the exposition is less clear, uh, in fact, much less clear. It's less consonant than the section that follows it. And by the time we get to 30 seconds in, although actually it kind of does follow the, the, the path of the first track in that regard, um, because by 30 seconds, we're kind of back in Ratatat territory, I almost felt. It was sort of an F-sharp minor jam. Structurally, it felt like I converted. we converted into kind of a neon utopia feel. Think neon lights mm -hmm. and future. And it had a saunter to it, you know, like someone It was very danceable. In fact, yeah. uh, I think that John was... mentioned here, it's my DM in here. Yeah, a little bit. Well, maybe more than a little bit. That saunter might also originate from the, the subtle piano tones coming back into it. There's a lot of soloing going on. <laughs> and it was contrasting with a, a very tap-oriented beat. 
a little bit divergent than what we got previously because this seemed more clipped. This seemed more like the tones themselves were a little bit sharper, a little more clear cut as opposed to having a little bit of oscillation or quiver in their execution. Yeah, in that regard, it actually successfully manages to to sort of capture what a whole lot of electronica tries to do. It kind of like capture this, like what you said, the, the whole neon utopia feel. There's, there feels to be something like mysteriously futuristic about this. But what I also love, just as, as an element to note, is is um this like background synth that occurs only like between phrases. It's it's like an interlude of sorts, but it's like an interphrase interlude. Uh, it's it's more of a compliment than anything else. But it it's like this rapid pace, uh like inaudible synth or builds to an inaudible place because initially when it hammers down it's just like all right and then it it, it speeds up it's like and, and then it fades because it's going so fast very strange but it's like this high synth that does that between every single phrase here and that actually occurs a little bit later too but not before this this sort of new section takes shape this uh more dissonant but you know melodically dissonant section with a lot of warbles and a lot of like fugue-like soloing that finally culminates around like one minute 40 seconds in a almost i equated to like j-pop practically it found it sounded like a j-pop dance song or or j-pop trance song it had those kind of sound bites it felt well yeah we got a little bit of what i guess we can call dropping the bass because there's no really other way to phrase it but it's almost a legitimate breather yeah we get a little legitimate breather that gives way to this this style of song that you're talking about it feels more like a trance dance song whereas we had hints of dance and it was danceable before now we're really in that kind of genre it really takes that structure it even feels a little safer as far as kind of the sound that it's producing. It, it does feel somewhat more familiar than other stuff we did yeah. in the song. Yeah, but it's almost like a transition because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't really seem to last that long. Almost 20 seconds later, we're out of it, and now there's, there's more of a theme back here because there wasn't so much of a theme there. That was kind of just a soundbite, you know, atmosphere transition. It's hard to describe. But now all of a sudden we have a theme again around like the two-minute mark. We start bringing back that, that element I noted, this sort of like rapid pace uh builds to like an inaudible you know place in the synth it's it's it was impossible to follow at that point because that suddenly now was not the interlude that is the dominating soundbite that actually forges this theme well this this b section theme kind of picks a fight with the a section a little bit what come what comes later is that tapping almost overlaid on top of the theme that trance section was producing the almost on top of the melody the the general pacing of that transaction and while it's it's as fast if not faster than it was previously the actual pitch shifts the actual tonal shifts seem to be following what the trance was doing itself and that's a weird combination because that rise and fall that was kind of steadier and a little more just a a, a bass oriented piece hearing it tapped out is Almost like a secondary song just busting through and influencing what's going on. This is also the first track that I think follows what I could only call, because we talked about it subject-wise, we talked about it at length back in the Aphex Twin uh, album, and that's kind of an Aphex Twin form, because this seems to really change its goal over the course of this entire track. It doesn't have the same structured elements that I noticed in the first three tracks here, where we kind of do bring it all back, and then we bring together elements of the A and, and elements of the B. Like John said, they just seem to be at war with one another here. When we have the A section, it's a it's a little bit more 
tangible. It's, it's easy to get on board with. Then all of a sudden, you know, as we move into the B section, all right, it's 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 still intricate, but at points it, it's impossible to follow. And then from three minutes on, this it was just flat out freeform, you know, and that seemed to do that all the way straight to the end. It didn't really bring the first elements back in any way. It ended in a completely different place than we started, which is something that Aphex Twin tends to do a lot. Square Pusher, I noticed, likes usually to, to be rounded and Cyclic come back. Cyclical. Cyclical, exactly. And this final section is just pure discord. There's, there's no rhyme or reason unless you're looking at the piece as a whole, unless you're taking this real end section and trying to eat it all at once, and you can't. That's yeah. the whole thing. This is uh, being on a roller coaster blindfolded. You don't know where the twists and turns are going to go up. But unless you listen to it over and over and over again... That's the only way you can really get the feel for it, and I love that. I love just not knowing any melody going on here, any rhythm going on here, because all that's just out the door at this point. <laughs> well, and your analogy to it, kind of like a roller coaster, is the fact that the way it ends also with that kind of sudden stop is like going over the, the big hill. Almost. Yeah. You can almost hear the air brakes kick in. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and what I liked about that is it's powerful because, and I mean, I know I've said this before, but it really is true with it, especially an album like this. Having a sudden stop on an album that tends to fade out or deconstruct, having that sudden stop is powerful. It adds kind of this drama to the end of the track before we go into track five which yeah. i appreciate especially considering the way track five started track five which is x jag knives or x yog I, I, I really don't want to pronounce these j's i don't no. know something about them something about them x jog knives you're a man who hates his j's we get it Apparently. um <laughs> what I, but, but what i was saying before Sorry, about John. how we had that sudden end this track starts with something we also haven't started with really it's a very breezy synth intro this is the closest to pure piano work that we've gotten on the album thus far on its own without it's, anything else it's just this kind of very open breezy um piano intro it's, it's, well it's it's synth but it's you know it feels almost it feels more natural it feels almost orchestral frankly yeah. i i found uh it feel it's very grand it was sweeping yeah and also uh, john noted this and i think uh it was it was pretty appropriate because it did seem to be like a similar tone to the kind of synths that they used to use uh ELO or electric yeah. light orchestra well, which i was listening to this past weekend while listening to this so, album so it was, it was in your head so it may yeah. be imperfect, but... <laughs> but it was old school. It, that That's just the major part. It was an old school kind of an electronica idea, and it turns into a very familiar uh, beat system that was sort of an, a, a rise, rise, drop, rise. And it was something that I've heard a lot, like, throughout. It was almost well, a pol poster child for early uh, techno. Well, it's, it's but it's also a poster child for what... Square Pusher tends to do a lot. I mean, the second you should hear you, the second you hear that thump following a very breezy opening intro, be worried because he's gonna do what Square Pusher does. From there, you know, you know the drill. Whenever you hear the thump, it's just, it's gonna get weird soon. He's gonna start going towards something. Uh, there's an A section here, which I would describe as having these like defined groups with a very defined melody. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's like digestible for an average, you know, pop goer, but it's a little more digestible. But then, and this is another uh this is another John analogy. I'm anal analogizing you. Oh, analogizing you a lot today. Something like we'll make yeah. up a word for it. No, this was um your analogy that it's like somebody, you know, just grabbed you and shook your head. 
because it's like a digression in the midst of something that otherwise would be a lot more formulaic. Then all of a sudden he rattles it up. The 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 rhythm all of a sudden doesn't have these steady groups. The melody doesn't have these steady groups. Everything is just suddenly out on a limb or a lot more dense, one or the other. And then he goes back to A. It's, it's weird. These, uh, as Steve put it, digressions. Let go of your head. <laughs> digressions, or as I wrote down on my little piece of paper because I had to go elegant, a psyche shaker. Yeah, I know. It's overblown. But anyway, Ooh. these little bits... I like it better when I just quoted you. <laughs> these little <laughs> you bits, these digressions are pure fun, pure rush of adrenaline when it comes right down to it. And it's it's how the previous track ended. It was It's the interesting part. But at the same time, it's the part that borderline scary for how abrupt it answers and how abrupt it leaves but it always leaves a little bit because after this first little digression we have an a prime a's not back a's got a little bit of a change to its melody a little bit of change to its flow there's yeah, a little more complexity exactly, going it's on it's an a prime um but yeah I, I see what you're saying about you know the idea that it could be a little bit scary and that's also another strange thing that i feel is kind of being done with the whole acid concept the, the idea that like well whenever it gets really suddenly frantic it's almost like having an anxiety attack like you go from a really really nice safe even place and then all of a sudden everything is just you know it, it's out of your control and you feel that way maybe for a certain length of time and then inevitably you will probably regain control again it seems to be the way he builds a lot of his tracks i know this from previous albums too i think that is why while john mentioned that parts of it were less entertaining than, than especially the head shaking parts that's how I kind of related to this track and related to a lot of the stuff that I got out of his work where I couldn't find clear emotion I did find this wrestling with calm and anxiety and yeah. you definitely get a sense of it here what I like about this track is we mentioned Yellow and it has that kind of arena rock feel in its scope that kind of anxiety ridden head shaking moment gives the entire track the dynamics that really made me enjoy the track. Even though the lighter parts were probably a little less interesting, I think because they were less interesting, it gave impact to those anxiety-ridden moments. One couldn't exist without the other, yeah. you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And since these subsequent A-primes, because this happens several times, seem to start gaining more and more of the character of the these dissenting ideas, by the time we get to the outro, it, it's back to A. It's It really is that final push of this calmness, but it's really effed up at this point. There's yeah. a lot going on. A lot of this dissenting idea is there, and it's it becomes that calm that's not quite digestible. There's something lurking around the corner. If there was fear before, this is fear actually sort of invading the waking world idea. Your yeah. nightmares are starting to become a little too real. Also, it, it's probably it's probably good that we keep going back to the word digression as opposed to really breaking these down into the other letter, that is the, the B, D, F letters. But instead, you can't really do that. Instead, you might as well just call them digressions. You want to see them connect in some sense, but the only thing you can really connect is A. When A comes back, you know it's A. But then when B comes back and then you know, D comes back. It's, it's, they're not, they're not, they're different. They're just digressions. They go into a different place before returning. And that seems to be another thing he likes to do. You can never count that the same uh, departure will be the same, despite that there is a cyclical fashion here. It's never the same way each time. Now, considering the structure and the sound of this song, when we go to track six, Baltang Arg, um, 
it's kind of very different. There's a little bit of a disconnect. I don't think it's something that would throw you off or ruin the record or destroy the theme, if there is one. But it, it definitely... It's not jarring, it's just different. And in this intro, the beat work at least, the backbone of this song really feels like, at least for the first minute or so, like a rap song, especially considering a lot of the nerd artists. The backbeat to a rap song. Yeah. Like, it could easily accompany it, and they wrote it for that purpose. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I dare say this is a safety net. Yeah. He's introducing us to something safe. Because it's a very distinct motif. But it's then, a very familiar motif as well. But then, and, and yeah. this is an interesting moment here, because it almost starts as if it were to continue, as you said, Matt, yeah. along those lines, around like 115. It starts to get a little bit more serious. Now, Frank, to me, I don't know, I kind of went in a different place with this. To me, I heard, uh, I mean, it's hard not to equate these things to certain things, despite that still he's just kind of giving you something fresh. But I kind of heard like a whole like sparring environment here, like something out of Street Fighter or something. The accents even sound a little bit like like punches. They sound like strikes, all of that. But, you know, you you feel this sort of being ripping you away from... I suppose the backbeat that was the rap act, but yeah. you said that could have gone into like maybe something else. If you interpret it as a rap act, well, there could be a second section. So uh, all I was saying is with the the rap act is typically artists like I can name a few, um, MC Frontalot, uh, Shape of the Dark Lord, and Adam Warrock to be specific, they'll go into a section where it's not a verse, it's not a chorus, it's like an interlude or, or, or a B section where they kind of spit rhymes quickly yeah and they do it for about 10 to 20 seconds saying words or phrases very quickly to the to the increased rhythm it's doubtful if, they could keep that going <laughs> right if they had been able to, if it had only been a 20 second section it would fit in the structure that was being built in the first 50 minute or so yeah but because but, it goes on till about two minutes and eight seconds before we get any other changes it's too long while i'm sure there are rap artists who can do that for that length it's unlikely that it would go on that which long. is why at this point i started if we're just going for comparison's sake here it's why i started to look at this through like more of a video game lens because you have the opening motif if you don't see it in rap terms i see it as more just the theme of whatever game you're playing and then all of a sudden when it gets serious that's your sparring section and then it when it goes has... full two uh, two minutes and eight seconds here comes the boss and it i mean <laughs> you start getting like Bwah kind of sounds oriented it's like this foreboding when, diminished when they, chord yeah. like outline downward and then it's at double speed and a lot more imminent and it's almost like you'd expect a battle Frankly, to follow we, we're not in street fighter territory this is just pure dbz kind of just <laughs> speed hitting but then m bison shows up it's it's the boss it's the big bad guy and there's hopefully not DMZ. a nice little slow build slow he's walking onto scene it's a long walk and he starts walking and there's then running, a bit of a and then there's to this, yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 an evil strut, maybe not like evil capital E, but it's definitely not a nice fella showing up here. <laughs> but with all that that comes on, and then conflict starts rising, it gets a little more. Again, it starts full on thrashing as we get toward the end of like 350. You know, again, but, very, very imminent, but this time for like an awkwardly long amount of time that it's just thrashing the single steady beat over and over and over. But then sometime like after four minutes, it, it goes back to the battle, as it were, but this time much more playful. In, in, in it, like, you know, more of a higher register. I, I want to be in this game. <laughs> That's because it sort of infuses the. Uh, I guess we're calling it rap, A section, that introduction into it. It's, yeah, a, it's a little more back. upbeat, and it's more like the bad guy's beating up the song itself at this point. 
not or really. Or maybe you're winning. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but there's also a nice little element that gets thrown in here that really does strike a, a, a little bit of a unique chord, and that's the, the haunting notes, which are just, for me, a little bit difficult. As they breathe in, they screw up all the action. Everything just kind of, it doesn't stop, but punches miss. Well, if, if we're doing a fight scene, that's exactly. But it's what like happens. it's like yeah, punches miss. You stumble, and it starts getting really, really complex after that. And frankly, this track is just—it's something to experience. It's one WTF after another. And then, I mean, again, talk about the way in which he forges his tracks. This is another one where he's not terribly cyclical. Again, he kind of just works this up and and you know ramps up the anger, ramps it up, and then finally, it just—it ends in pure static. Like, someone just died. Well, it's the idea that, honestly, in, an, in, in a realistic rise of aggression, eventually someone's going down, yeah. and it's not going to be pretty. It's not a video game where it's like slow-mo, they hit the ground, you win. Okay, in yo. this, it's well, blood everywhere, somebody's down, the skull is cracked, and, like, it's a mess. As soon as somebody says Street Fighter, though, this as it gets to the, the really glitchy, discorded part, it's... If if before he started beating up the song, at this point, the bad guy's beating up the the actual TV. He's beating up the game console. Everything's starting to just break. Yeah, it never truly recovers from here. The chaos of the song itself just just fully wins out, and that's why it dies with that static. Chaos won. I mean, that's that's what I can say here. Chaos won this song. I can't help but feel there was some kind of like uh, reflection or or um. A reprise of perhaps an element in in the second track, which was called Baltang Ort, and here all of a sudden we're in Baltang Arg. I want to almost see like a connectivity in terms of the character because we began in such a a sol- solemn, dignified place in the beginning of track two, and here it really did build to chaos and and ended. But, we don't, but the thing is, is that it really doesn't, like, there's some connecting factors, but I feel like we get a stronger connection to track two with our next track, Quang True. Bass. Quang Bass. Which starts with, the, so it, it, there's it, a dynamic of something that's very close and something that's very far away. Far away, you have this kind of haunting, backing melody, and then in the forefront, you've got this kind of scatting, kind of fast rhythm. And, and that haunting, call- backing melody is kind of like that cosmos feel we heard back in track two. It's not quite the same, but it's, very, it's, it's sort of the same tone. What, what's really interesting about the tones here, though, and the, the structure is that you clearly hear something that's in the background and something that's closer to the foreground. There is a disconnect between those sounds. That's the big really, difference. You can is get that, this displacement kind of feel. Well, it's a, displace, it's a displacement because you get the backbeat from the get-go, whereas yeah. you didn't get that in track to uh you had to wait you know after the whole rah 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 thing and then finally eventually it does uh get to that but here it starts immediately with the backbeat it's very present it's also very repetitive and not quite as dynamic either um rhythmically it's very crisp kind of scratchy you get like these scratching vibrations but it 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 persists with that for for a while at least all the way up to the to the minute mark where all of a sudden you get these really really astute strums which was one of my favorite thing here just the strums at key moments almost sounding like someone reached inside a piano and just strummed away at the chassis all 88 keys with the dampener pedal down that's what this sounds like i would argue perhaps exactly is that these little varying strums uh, inject a little bit of a mutation into well into, into the, the otherwise steady steady background. Yeah. Yeah. It gives this it a high, creepier feel. Well, it also subtly shifts it. I yeah. mean, it still goes back to form because it's not just these strums. Eventually, also there's like a gong, like a background big, you know, 
Asian-oriented gong going on. It's a little more crisp, but very muted. I think that's what I feel in the piano, though, because when you do it all at once, it kind of sounds like a gong. It's it it's it's subtle. It's a subtle little like extra it's... little strand of DNA in the machine going on right here that changes it. But it still goes back to form. These little mutations. Well, they do build. Get weeded out. Even that is a mutation. I'm not even sure. It be, I mean, actually, I thought it kind of took over, as if like the rest is being weeded out because those strums they get louder later. They even get eerier because they linger for so much longer. But here's the thing to note: it it is one among many layers. Uh, that piano is a layer, but so are these little, like, laser pistols that occur. I wrote down laser pistol pew-pews, because it's the, kind of the best way to explain well, it. Why not? They end up being typical soundboard-style space sounds, because yeah. there's almost, like, your standard something from, like, 8-bit, like, thrusters or something yeah. like that. But that's just, again, one among many. You also get like this, what I sounded like, crashing waves. Also things that sounded like broken machines trying to catch almost like they did way back in the beginning of track one. And then finally these industrial hums for like a really long duration. And that seemed to be the one that persisted and, and plateaued for a very, very long time. But all in the course of this, it's it's really because the, the, the foundation is is so steady from the very beginning, it's, this is the dynamic element. The sound bites, strangely, which are normally color and, and external, now they're the main element. They're the things you wait for because they're the most dynamic piece. It's somebody messing with my Galaga. They're, they're playing... It's, it's exactly that. The sound bites are the, the characters on screen interacting with one another. The firing of your lasers, the, the, the movement of the vehicles, or what have you. You mean, the, you mean the your Galactica? <laughs> Galaga. Oh, okay. Gal- the, the, yeah, the that's what it's called, you're right. Pac-Man, all that sort of stuff. That's right. It's the drone, the, the beats, that's just the music that continuously plays as you're playing the game. But someone's glitching it. Someone's messing with it. Like I said, uh, I had said earlier when we were listening to the album, it's an evolution through sound bites. Like the whole song is hint- is you know focused on those sound bites, and they help develop and change the song until it unravels towards the end. All of the building that it's doing very slowly is hingent on those sound bites. But it stops. There's a dead stop, and that is one of the most interesting pieces. We've talked about this at length. In a lot of different episodes, the use of silence is very hard to pull we off the right way. get a hard way. two seconds of dead silence with no music, as if it were the track ending. And then from there, the rhythm changes even more, and we get a kind of almost deconstructing of what was being built. The, de- the deconstruction, actually, I thought was just prior to it. It seemed to deconstruct until the portion where it just pulled, pulled a, a dead halt. And then, it, it, yeah, it's, that, it's about like maybe the leading four, code. This would be like about 4 minutes, 17 mm-hmm. seconds. But just get silence for that full measure. And then we seem to go back to the A section to me. I'm not sure it was really a deconstruction. You're right. Except... Maybe a fusion it was of more certain elements. Tense, I feel, than the earlier part that well, it's represented. That's the thing. It's more. It's it's more tense. So that's why the deconstruction occurred prior, and then all of a sudden here, the rhythm is kind of like take. It's taken itself up a notch. It's not nearly as backseat. The sound bites also, though, do completely take over at a certain point, but they're both like equally pronounced. Also, the laser. You know, think of all the sound bites. The laser effects are more pronounced. It seemed like the bro- broken machines were back, and the industrial hums just kind of stayed. Also, those laser effects felt like they were a little bit more pitch bendy. They were accentuated in some way. So they're only deconstructed by simply being merged with each other. Um, well, it's it's 
and, not, and, and not fusing into the thing where no law you can't take them out it, anymore. Deconstructed isn't the word. They're corrupted. One and the other fighting against one another. They're influencing each other it too much. Creates chaos. Yeah, it's it's not a hundred percent chaos because the through line is still there. There's still enough familiarity throughout the final the final few bars that I don't feel like anything was truly lost. But it's it's the a literal form of glitch if we're gonna equate it to Galaga. If we're, in my eyes, it's corrupted. The game itself is going off hinge. Well, to start infusing some opinions here, I mean, you could see this in, in two different ways. On one hand, it's flat-out exploration. It's flat-out, you know, it's another example of sound art. He's he's fusing all these elements together, trying to see how they'll work in the end. But also, there's a tendency, you know, like a lot of closing material, to just kind of, like, well, put everything in one in one pool and, you know, see how they function. But I did find myself slightly less invested toward the end here than I was earlier because I kind of liked being able to pick out the details and I liked the eeriness that was built. I liked the big, you know, two-second uh, culmination, but I'm not sure the, the, the reprise w was, was quite as impactful to me. Well, before we get into the final track, this song was kind of a precursor to how the, we f kind of feel about the final track as a whole, only because the way it kind of gets intense and is a summation of the track the final song is a summation of the album. But before we get to that, I want to make it very clear what Steve said about it being sound art versus the music and how this is a clear picture of sound art. I did not like this song. To my ears, I disliked it immensely. I just didn't enjoy it. It was, it was, uh, you know, harsh. It just, I didn't, I didn't really like it at all. That said, though, I feel it's one of the best examples of excellent sound art that I've ever heard and actually kind of makes me eat my words a bit on how down I had been on sound art in the past. I feel like we've had a lot of examples. We've had a lot of examples in the way of Flying Lotus going back to episode 19, again in episode 131, and Aphex Twin in episode 126. All of these things, like, it's, it's, you have to treat them that way because they're not meant to be listened to in the same way that we approach a lot of other music. They're more of an experience, just like I said about acid techno earlier on. Sometimes they just set out to screw with your head. And I feel like, whereas in the past I've been very down on it because I feel like music needs to be listened to, you have to enjoy it. I'm more inclined to disagree with myself now because I kind of get it. Uh, Square Pusher really kind of gave you a perspective and a sense that you were almost on the outside looking in and I was able to respect and understand what he was building and what he made. You're actually able... It's a dictionary. It's not a very good read, but you learn a lot of words out of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it really comes down to because some of his ideas are just frankly mad. Well, let's look at the final stretch. Track 8, D, Frozen... AC or AAC, like the uh, Apple proprietary file? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Who knows? So this starts with a pulsing intro, something that we've heard before on this album, we've heard before in this genre or its contemporaries. You know, just a very kind of almost human pulse. Not really a heartbeat, but just a warm kind of pulsing sound. It's also kind of foreboding, though, yes. equally. And it also just follows two chords, mainly, to open. It's just two chords back and forth, they mm -hmm. kind of pivot, and then the industrial stuff kind of starts up again, almost like in the beginning. It's, it's a mix, though, of, of a lot of different elements on this album. It's a mix of cosmos sounds, it's a mix of industrial, and also maybe your favorite horror movie to bring in the whole uh, foreboding element. But I would maybe argue that in certain sections here, it would bring in your favorite cheesy horror film, because there are certain times where yeah. you hear that synth sound, and it's just like, well, how scared am I, really? It's a well, funny-looking monster. As a whole, this is one of the few songs, or maybe even the only song, that I feel like just has a through line with it. Just has a solid core. Remember, it's a piece, not a song. Uh, the only, so the only song might be the, the rah, rah, rah. I'll have to add those lyrics to um, 
to A to Z. <laughs> the through line here of this piece, the, the, the solidity of it is kind of disappointing. The fact that it just evolves without really stealing elements, without screwing with the elements of the previous sections, because it, it does have a very sectional kind of a feel to it, is pretty disappointing because I wanted the effed up stuff. I think it's also, you do have to remember this, because we're at the tail end of the album here, some of the stuff does start to blend in your mind over the course of it. So, you know, it's possible that, I say this a lot about uh, albums as you experience them, if you took a track toward the end and then you moved it earlier in the album, well, would you notice it in the same fashion? Maybe you'd be more intrigued by it. You don't know. But all you're getting is you're getting the industrial, the cosmos, uh, the horror stuff. You even start getting, like, the kind of depth and, and resonance, like, around 2.30. It was it was very crisp, almost like the kind of stuff we got back in, in Kang Ding Ray in episode 133. The pops are very crisp, and it's it's kind of hard to to, like, to sort of like these contrasts in texture all at once, you know, there, there's nothing really to latch on to except these kind of disparate feelings, and you don't know which one is right, you don't know which one defines the track or the album as a whole, which is why this was a, this was a tough closer. Well, I think also the problem that really kind of hurt it as a closer, at least for us, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm getting the sense that because it felt more like closing materials, this kind of summation of everything we'd heard before, but without kind of screwing with you, as we've been saying, yeah. It kind of left us wanting. It's the first song to really kind of feel its length. I mean, all the tracks are around the same length, and it I'm like I wasn't bored by any minute means. But that said, it did kind of. To be fair, there was a little consonant ele uh, element more toward like you know the late three minute mark. It was a little more of a synth melody there. That was something you grasp hold on, but then he retracts and does weird stuff again. You know, it's a lot of that back and forth. But, but it, it, we heard it. Right. That said, like it felt more like the literary definition of a conclusion. When you read a story or an essay, and the conclusion usually just kind of sums up everything you've learned the whole time. And is poorly done like 90% of the time. It, that's <laughs> what this kind of really feels like. I see. But there is one little aspect that I did thoroughly appreciate from an artistic point of view, and that was the actual closing note. It was just this hard screech. It was just a rising... It was ear-hurting. Nails on a chalkboard kind of it thing. It felt like the feedback squeal from, like, amp interference. Mm -hmm. And musically, you never want to do something like that. Artistically, fit the album very well. This loose... Fit the idea of the chaos and discord and all the different things that we talked about. Just, just to a T. That was a great period for a kind of a weak final sentence. Like the, the mm. I think that it, it's very true that that kind of moment also kind of gives you an impact. Like it just it makes you how and, do you how do you put it? Like I'm trying to kind of like use a different metaphor than mine. Yeah, and not be cliché, but you know, I mean the screech was kind of obnoxious, but again, you're right. As it, from an art, a sound art perspective, it only made sense. Oh, because of the loose themes that we're building here about discord and and like horror and screwing with you. If this whole album has been him screwing with you, how best to screw with a listener than by giving them an ear piercing sound? Yeah, that's even end. that's even a little bit more, yeah. So, and I think that's really what he was looking to do. I, I mean, obviously it was intentional. Why else would you put that sound? All right, let's wrap up this bad boy and move on. Um, so here's the thing. With our with my lovely co-hosts going well out of their way to bring a lot more instrumental and electronic music on within the last year or so. You're welcome. More, You're hey, welcome. I just reached for a name in the depths of my library. An old name, too. Um, I've, I sometimes struggle, I'll admit, with purely instrumental albums to find a connection. Not always. There have been ones that I have really 
related too strongly and others that I didn't relate to at all. Like, I probably rated on the lower side in the curve for Aphex Twin because I just didn't get that connection that you guys found in that album. This album's an interesting beast because emotionally, besides the minor kind of emotional points we hit on or the vagaries that we kind of applied to the tracks, there was no heavy emotional impact. There was no sad, happy, angry, no extreme emotions. But I did get a sense of aesthetic and a loose, loose, loose theme. You know, there's definitely a musical arc. I mean, all the tracks are connected. There's an interconnectivity between the tracks that give it a fairly strong structure. Um, but I just, I don't know. I feel like talent-wise, he's, he's definitely doing something that we don't hear a lot of. It pulls from other places, but it's not something we hear all the time. It's got elements of stuff we've heard, and we mentioned that, but more or less, it's definitely he's doing something interesting, especially this concept of actually, for lack of a better word, trolling your audience. This <laughs> idea that he's setting stuff up to knock them down. It's, mm. it's, it's interesting. So I was definitely from a, a sound art, first of all, learning to understand sound art for, from an, this interesting perspective, and actually getting some entertainment out of the record. Um, I think that it has some strong qualities. But as far as strong theme or emotional arc, there really isn't by, besides the vagaries we mentioned already. And I just feel like I need something more concrete than that. Um, I think he definitely has the ability to do more. I'm curious, Steve, before I wrap up completely, do you, do you feel this is one of his better works? Or do you feel like it lacks what his old works had? Because I have no history with him. That's very complex, which is why I completely avoided like touching upon this in my intro. I'm not even sure if I'm going to touch upon it in my outro. But I will say this, that as a high schooler, when I first heard of his name, uh, I considered myself, I think I said this in my intro last week, in fact, to the album, I considered myself pretty open to most things. He gave me a run for my money. But with age, and perhaps with his own age too, I found this album to be a lot more digestible. Okay. Quality-wise, I can't speak to it. Got it. That's kind of all I needed. And I agree. Digestible is the best way to put this record. Which just means I also maybe like, I can just appreciate it, which coincides with digestibility. You don't, right. you don't know. It's, it's really hard to say, and this is an album that's been one of the more difficult to really kind of put my thumb on. It's just because of the kind of environment it's breeding. Like, this way that we're looking at it, I think, is bred by where this album kind of exists in its own universe. But that said, as far as talents go, I feel like he has a unique talent to himself, and he does unique things. But in the pantheon music ever, I feel like, you know, there could there's still more to this. I feel like there could be... He could create... While screwing with you, he could create a stronger emotional impact. And it just wasn't there. It was kind of... You were a wash of kind of a loose feeling. I don't want to ramble on forever about it. I think that it approaches Upper Echelon. But because I'm still kind of left with a big question mark on a lot of it, mm. I have to rate it under a 4. So for me, it's a solid 3.9. Because he is definitely a talent... And he's definitely approaching strong territory. It's not average by any means, for sure. So that's why I think it sits at a strong 3-9 for me. This was a trip. Honestly, I love the album on a personal level. Because I, I haven't listened to anything like this. I mean, we listen to techno. We listen to a bunch of techno. But it's not this type of techno. 
I would encourage this... any listener to like pause you and then replay your excitement last week yeah, when I, I introduced this album. <laughs> you know, I, it's been a while I, since I, I wonder whether it lived up. Acid. In fact, we'll let you go do that. Okay, we're glad we you went and did that. This this is something I'm going to argue against you, Matt. You said not real heavy emotional connection, and that's where I think a little bit of the point that you may be missing. And I, it's not a fault of you. It's just I approach this a little bit differently. This is not making a setting on its own. This is not making a theme on its own or emotional connection. This is supposed to F up the world around you. When you listen to Glitch, when you listen to Acid, when you listen to the weird techno stuff, you are taking what is around you, your actual setting, and changing it. And I think this album does it fairly well. Maybe not to the the level of without, you know, the application of barbiturates or something like that can achieve, but it still messed with me when I was listening to it. To the point where I was closing my eyes while driving a car, bopping my head along. Not the best combination. But it was a mind trip at aspects. Being a mind trip throughout would have definitely been bad. I'll say that right up front. You cannot screw with an audience that way for 45 minutes or more. I mean, you just, you can't do something like that unless, you know, Clockwork Orange shows well, trips or something like that. trips have to have highs and lows. You I can't mean, stay consistent. For every for every Clockwork Orange or or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which are, you know, the, I guess, the, the video, the, the movie equivalents I would, for something like this, you still have plenty of duds out there. How about Eraserhead? Yeah. Uh, keep going. <laughs> It was really solid throughout. I mean, uh, until that ending and the stinger, the, the the last little bit that he throws in there, almost redeems the song as far as the overall arc goes. But that was really the weakest part of the whole album. It, it, it winded down towards the end. But I think it did its job. I think it really set out to kind of change what I was experiencing while listening to it. And I think that's what it was intended to do. So for that, I'm gonna I'm gonna be bumping it up. Four two five. It's it's in that same sort of territory as a lot of other electronica we've reviewed, like King Ding Ray or or uh, Afix Twin. It's doing something better than what I've found everybody else doing, and it's doing something a little bit unique in in its own way. As a musician, these tracks put me in a rather weird place. I admire a lot of these tracks, and I admire the guy who wrote them. I also aspire to, I think, some of the same things on this album. Uh, I have more of an electronic music background now than I did when I was in high school, so to your point earlier, Matt, you know, maybe I really wasn't in the right frame of mind back then as as now. Back then, I was just like, all right, well, it's interesting, but I couldn't get through it on a full album scale. This, I got through pretty pretty easily. Perhaps the only falter was really that last track where I was just wondering, you know, whether it was maybe pulling some of the punches. I think it did. But the thing is, other things on this album, I guess also as a musician, kind of frustrate the crap out of me. <laughs> I mean, there are sections where, like, my own tastes and leanings would obviously push me in a different direction to make different choices. I think one of the main things that will keep this as an upper echelon piece to me is just because it relies so heavily on rhythm, which I know is is strange because I, of my whole intro, I love the fact that it goes there. I love the fact that it uses that as its 
primary go-to tactic and tone really takes a back seat it's just there to provide some some color and eeriness it's not the primary element except in the cases where he wants to go dissonant which where it coincides perfectly with the frenetic rhythm but I don't know. There are times when I just wish that he would use that to a bigger degree on these section changes. I just wish that there were other things happening there. I think that's how I feel about a lot of his work, but that doesn't mean that I'm not on board for the ride. I think this is a great experiment, and I think it's a tight experiment. Also, it's one of the best, perhaps one of the best electronica albums that I've listened to personally in terms of a full album arc. I think that each and every track here, because it's it's concise, it really is, like, eight tracks, it's easy for most people to get through. Some of them are a little bit on the longest side, but they change up, and they give you something on each and every minute. Notice I'm giving timestamps here, because there are not always subtle changes, there are changes, and they're well-married ones. It's not just an electronica artist going off on a spree, despite the the name Acid Techno, I actually think this is really born of a... Uh, concise, clear-headed uh, composer. So, all I can do, really, as far as a rating is concerned, is compare it to the other stuff that we've reviewed. I mean, we did Affix Twin. I gave that a 4.2. We did Kang Ding Ray. I bumped that up for having a very, very unique theme to, uh, I believe, a... Oh, no, excuse me. I think, actually, that was that a little bit lower because it wasn't quite as investing on a, a moment-by-moment basis. I think that was a 4.13. It was really weird. You were odd I don't know. about that one. I don't know. Yeah, I, maybe I just, like... You wanted to go in between me and Matt, if, I, I if I'm not I went for, I went was, for the yeah. gut there. But, you know, in, in this case, I think it's just... I think it, it, it offers different things. I think it's in the same exact ballpark. Obviously, 4.2 and 4.13 are not far apart. I think this is maybe a hair up. I'm going to push it to a 4.3 because I just flat out enjoy it more. There are parts there in the middle of this album, early, middle especially, where I am just... I'm. I'm focused. I am bobbing my head along. I'm tapping. I'm trying to keep up with the crazy rhythms going on. Or you're I shushing really... somebody who's trying to talk over it. Precisely. And I'm just, you know, I, I can't remember being that involved in, in a piece in terms of, like, air drumming and air guitaring probably since, like, you know, Edgar Winter's Frankenstein. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really that level for me in portions, and I think that really is worth the extra mark. The rest of which is just, you know, it leaves certain things to be desired, but I know that's a shtick. So I'm going to put into a solid 4.3. I think that ultimately it might have gone over my head and it's why I'm where I am, but I wouldn't change it because while the moments did really pull me in. Do what I did. Sit with Square Pusher for nine years and come back to the radio. All right. I will, this podcast as my witness, reassess this nine years from now and see if I enjoy it more. Okay, I'm putting so, that on my SkyDrive right now. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody Google Calendar it. Yeah, uh, that'll I be know. around like episode 600. So, you know. Yeah, you know that's fine. Eat. I got some time. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think, it, and it could just be me personally that it went over my head. That said, still sits at a 3.9 and that's still not bad even for me because it's still towards the upper echelon. He's not a three. And you flat out said you dislike points, and I know that the, uh, sometimes, especially when we first started, you, you rated low for disliking. Right, which, you know, isn't always necessarily fair. Um, so I want to go back to something we were talking about a little earlier. Um, I mentioned that I went to the Warp Tour, and I first first and foremost, before we even get to our topic, want to take a moment to thank MC Large again, not because I got a free ticket. I don't want to, to it to seem like I only enjoyed the show because I went for free. It's not the case. I would pay to see MC Lars every time. I've been very blessed and lucky that he set me up with a press pass the first time I saw him recently. 
Um, I've seen him times and times before, but the last time when I interviewed him, he gave me a press pass, and this time he gave me a yes pass, and I'm super thankful for it and would gladly pay to see him anytime. That said, I want to talk a little bit about how cost of tickets for events can affect how you kind of view that event or experience. Now, what do I mean? I'll give a very specific example with the Warp Tour. The Warp Tour six years ago, I went and I spent hundreds of dollars on scalped tickets for me and my girlfriend at the time. We got in to six or seven hour festival in the brutal heat in the middle of the summer in New York, in this case, New Jersey. We were there for a few hours and then she fainted due to heat exhaustion. Mm. I was sick and nauseous. We had to leave. We went home. I wasted money, saw three bands and had to leave. That was very upsetting. I swore off Warped Tour for a very long time due to delicate constitutions, which is fair enough. <laughs> this recent time I went, thanks to MC Lars, I had a very different experience. And I think part of it was the fact that I didn't pay for the ticket. I was very uncomfortable. The heat was bad. You know, I, I stayed for the bands that I really, really, really wanted to see. And then I left. And I didn't feel as bad about it because I didn't pay for the ticket. So even if I had fainted due to heat exhaustion and had to leave early, I wouldn't have felt like I wasted my money. That said, maybe someone might argue, well, you valued the experience less because you didn't pay for it, which is a possibility. But this is where this kind of idea came from, this idea that because I had the great honor and benefit of having a free ticket, which I'm very thankful for, I was able to leave early guilt-free because I didn't feel like I was wasting money. That's because of something called the hedonic addiction. It's an effect where when you buy stuff, it makes you feel so good for so amount of time. But when you buy it again, it doesn't feel as good that second time. It's, it's basically the heroin effect. It happens with all possessions. But this honestly only really applies for good events really that much. If something's crap, I mean, you pay for it or not, you're gonna, it's going to still be crap. You just, uh, yeah, I mean, you may say, at least I didn't waste money on this. But at the same time, it's still a negative experience. It might be slightly more negative, but it's still going to be not good. I have an anecdote to go along with this. Somewhere in the area of five to six years ago, I decided to see two concerts in one day. It was very challenging because uh, an artist we formerly reviewed, that would be Chad Van Galen, episode 97, I believe, um, was performing for a free concert at the South Street Seaport. That same day, a friend of mine was also going to a Primus concert, and I really, really wanted to go to that Primus concert. Same exact night. Now, they were only in the area of, like, two hours apart, but I also know that concerts run long, so there's going to be a lot of overlap, not to mention travel time. Uh, Primus, for anyone in the New York City region, would obviously know this. They were playing in uh, the Williamsburg Music, not the Music Hall, but the, the waterfront Williamsburg venue right in the East River. So to go from South Street Seaport to uh, Williamsburg, I had to cross the river. So, of course, I saw Chad Van Galen, and finally when that wrapped up, I decided, all right, well, I know that I'm going to only get maybe half of the Primus show, but and I didn't buy the ticket yet. 
Remember, Chad Van Galen, free concert. Didn't buy the ticket yet for Primus, and I'm like halfway through, am I even gonna get in? The best I'm gonna do maybe is meet my friend after the show. Nevertheless, I'll try. So I rush in the subway, the four train uptown. Go to Union Square, get in the L train. Go over to Bedford Avenue, walk toward the waterfront, and here I am on the sidelines, and I can hear Primus playing. They're over there, of course it's an outdoor venue, so I can hear them, but I can't see anything. There's a big wall there, and it didn't seem like there was any chance of getting a ticket here, except for the fact that this guy who looked really frustrated walked up to me and just flat out was just like, here, here's four tickets. Do you want them? I, I, I gotta go. He was waiting for someone, clearly, and he just didn't want to wait anymore. He looked like he'd been through a ringer. So he handed me four tickets, and I took all four of them, and I'm like, all right, well, I have more than enough now to get into this concert. And then I notice I overhear a little conversation about a couple of other guys who were like, yeah, they were out front and they wanted to get their friend in, but they couldn't. They didn't have enough tickets. So I did that thing that is, shouldn't be advertised on podcasts, but I did that thing. I thought I'd make an offer. Literally for like a fraction of the price, just like 20 bucks. It was a lot more expensive, but I offered them 20 bucks for this ticket. And then another guy also wanted one, so I offered another 20 for another ticket. And after I made that offer, they were like, all right, great. But I told them, I just got these. I told them the absolute truth. Some guy just handed to me. I don't know whether these will work, but you stay with me. I guarantee you if they don't work, you know where I am. I'll give you money back on the spot. So we stay together. We go up. We all get scanned. We're in the concert. I went to two concert with a surplus of $40. I enjoyed my day a just... lot, despite the fact that I'm very far from Primus. Les Claypool is a speck. But I meet up with my friend, we're there, we get a beer, and we saw maybe like the last three tracks. I don't care. I went to two concerts, and I got $40 to do so. Okay. What was that theory called again? Hydnistic uh, adaptation. Here's the question. Guilty as charged. Two questions. Actually, uh, we'll, we'll start with this. Which was the better concert? I don't mean the actual because music, I like... but the experience. Which one felt better? The first one. I had wanted to see Chad Van Galen for ages, and I went solo. There was no one around to do so, and frankly, I don't know any like other Chad Van Galen fans. So I'm just like, that's a personal thing for me. I adored Skella Connection. You'll hear me rant about that on episode 97, and I just wanted to see him live. He's from Calgary, Alberta. What are my chances? I had never seen him to be performing in New York in, in the future. So, yeah, that felt really, really good, solo or otherwise. Okay, then my second question is, do you think the trip to the second concert or the actual getting free tickets and actually making a few bucks off of the second concert affected the way you viewed it and i don't mean from a musical i mean just from the actual sitting there experience type of a deal do you think it had any bearing do you think it had any bearing on my enjoyment yeah the fact that you had to run around in a different way to get to the second concert i think it did First of all, I got an anecdote. <laughs> I mean, that, that was worth it. I can't tell you how many times I've told this story, although interestingly enough, not on the air, you know, up till present. But it, it, it really did affect it because I know that if that didn't happen, then I probably wouldn't have even gotten to see the concert. I know that my plan up until that guy made me that offer was literally just to stay in the sidelines and, and listen to Primus. <laughs> but my question is, you didn't just get a free concert. It wasn't a concert that was free to begin with. It was a concert that you got a ticket to. But you don't, Not feel, just got it. You no, don't no. feel drained in the process. 
Thus, but, it really did affect my enjoyment. But this wasn't just, this wasn't, you know, getting a free ticket to Warp Tour or something like that. This was even further. You made a few bucks off of it. Yeah. Why doesn't that make you feel even a little bit better? Even if you're tired or anything like that, why doesn't make that make you feel a little bit better than the first concert? Because that would actually go against what we're talking about right here, or what... What Storm said, what it goes with what I Maybe said. Maybe you make a very you good point. You actually made a few dollars. You were you were rewarded for going to this concert. It wasn't even you got the concert. It was there was additional rewards. You know what? You do make a good point. If that if that was my reaction that the first concert was still more enjoyable from a first personal standpoint, and that would have been free anyway, whether I had even made the decision to go out to Williamsburg or not. Eh, yeah, you know what? That actually is a pretty good, strong case toward the fact that, I, I guess, at playing devil's advocate, sometimes money doesn't matter. The story did seem to be ancillary to the, my even going to the, primary, uh, the Primus concert. Which is what brings me to the next point. The, the adaptation applies to material things a lot quicker than it applies to experiences. Um, when you have equal value items or experiences when it comes to actual investment of time or money... It's already been scientifically proven multiple occasions that experiences always make you feel better in the long haul because mm. experiences have associated uh, uh, memories that trigger endorphins and all that sort of stuff. But in the most basic way, you can actually remember the experience. Even bad experiences in the hall, the before – and after, if there was anticipation or if everything ended up turning out okay, can trigger happy responses. That's true. I'm, I'm having serious problems with memory lately, but I can remember every detail of that night. I can remember the words that the guy said, uh, the second guy who, who wanted to sort of buy the ticket off of me, and he went up to me and said, hey, I want, I have a ticket to go to the concert, but Joey doesn't have a ticket, so you know, maybe you could help me out a little bit? What do you want for it? 20 bucks, that sounds good, man. That sounds great. He was like an old rocker. They were like 45-year-old rockers, and they were, they desperately wanted to see Primus. So, they were... He bought me a beer afterwards. <laughs> I think also the, the thing that made me think of this discussion point and also kind of the dynamic of Warped Tour six years ago versus now is also I was younger. I would spent money and then was frustrated and it was a negative experience. I guarantee that whether I spent however much I spent, and I will not go into detail, mm -hmm. or five bucks, I probably would have been just as pissed because I wanted to see a ton of bands that day and I didn't get to because someone else got sick. And it would be very selfish of me to force us to stay. The biggest aspect of that is that there's a penalty system associated with it. In that you're paying money and that's the penalty for the fun that you're having. Right. As opposed to the material goods that you're not spending on the most recent concert. Because there's no penalty associated with leaving early you're able to relax better. Yeah. There's no obligation. So, it, and I think that's the kind of perspective where it's not good or bad, but there's less guilt or expectation. Well, here's the big, the big uh, opposition. Of course, for things like Warped Tour festivals, they're the ultimate, you know, in terms of taxing you. They, they demand the largest amounts of money from you and they demand the largest amount of time. If you want to really make the best out of that money, you won't go to just one day. You'll go to all things. For people that go to Bonnaroo, it's a cross-country road trip for them. Yeah. Um, for people that go to uh, Burning Man, you know, also cross-country road trip plus a lot more that I think they're expected to throw themselves into. Of course, they have a great time, but you kind of set back and you have to make sure that, you know, your job allows this. It's a lot of 
uh, coordination. But the antithesis to all of this, you know, and the antithesis to that and working down the ladder to a, a regular concert and an arena venue is finally just, you know, your bar and show. You know, that's a lot of times places that don't even charge cover. Places that just they put on music. If you want to listen, sure. If you don't, sure. You're not really paying money to see the, the, the music itself. Most people who are paying the money, they're just paying to, to drink and that's it. But you're all of a sudden getting music that you didn't expect. A lot of times I find this is how people get into local bands because they're there, they got music, it fit the environment, maybe they're talking to someone who was close to them at the time, and then all of a sudden, all of this for not a dime or a shred of planning out of their pocket. It was purely spontaneous, and that's how they became a longtime fan of a band, and they have a personal connection with it. They were there, it wasn't recommended to them, they found them in a sense. That's a strong thing for a, a fan of music in general, and I am inclined to think it really is attached to not just the money factor, but the time factor. If you don't expect it, and you don't have to put anything in, you'll probably get a lot back in return. Well, and also, while we are not advocating that you go to these venues and spend nothing, because they need to make money, yeah. and the bands need to be supported, it is often that... We're addressing the flighty nature of the arts in general. Right. And the fact that, yeah, money is almost the side point, but it also does come down to that in the end. But it's also like, I know a lot of indie artists who push hard for people to not necessarily spend money on their albums and spend more money on their live experience or just to support them word of mouth or all of this stuff. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about that situation specifically is also, for me personally, if I really like somebody and they're not hawking their CDs or there's no cover charge, I'm more inclined to drop more money in a tip jar because they're really good and I want to support it directly. Yeah. There's no go-between. There's no cut. It's just you give money to the band, the band gets the money, they spend it on whatever they spend it on, whether it's gas, instruments, Production, you're whatever. Ki you're kickstarting them. I know, so it's, it's, the good old, it's the good old fashioned, you know, uh, street side charity, so to speak. And, you know, you don't have to wonder, being like, well, they're going to use that money for. You heard them. You heard what they do. It's just, it's very, it's, it's you know, service meets, you know, exchange on the most fundamental level, but also the fact that it was never demanded. It's like whatever you'd care to give. It is very egalitarian for, and also very risky for an artist to base their entire, uh, their entire future on that, that thin margin and that, that very narrow chance that they manage to get enough people onto their side, but it, it's very noble. I, I'm still surprised to see a lot of people do it. Yeah, I mean, well, it's one of the pride points of the way station, a venue we've mentioned many a time, and Andy talked about this when he's on the podcast. What episode was that again? That was episode 146. He, he talks about how he wanted to build that kind of community both for the artist and for the viewer of the art, that it, you know, with the exception of certain shows and certain artists who have showed up, he wants that environment. If you come, you hang out, you enjoy yourself. If you feel inclined to give, you do. But otherwise, just enjoy yourself. You know, and, and it really works very well, especially for a local scene that's trying to build up a, a... You know, we talked about this ages ago, how local music scenes come and go. And this is a real great way for him to perpetuate, at least within Prospect Heights, a very strong culture. And you could say this is something desirable. I mean, bands desire it, even not just on like a street or local level. If you're touring the country still, 
that's it's very common to create like you know PR schemes because if you care about your fans, you try to work out ways. The whole like crowdfunding thing, which uh, you discussed recently with mm -hmm. um uh, the band Sexy Heroes, correct? correct? The idea of crowdfunding and trying to like in a sense get a a pool so that way, well, fans will have to put in the least amount in order to enjoy your work. And there does seem to be that desire because after all, that's how you're gonna win fans over. People like that that level of. People like doing nothing, I guess is the cruelest way of saying it, but it is the arts anyway. It, it's something to be enjoyed, not always something to be consumed. It adds a level of intimacy that yeah. is lacking when you just go out and buy a CD. Well, yeah. so also, MC Lars has a song called Download This Song, and it was before, you know, downloaded music really became the height. It was still back in the kind of LimeWire era, but he talks about how music was a product, now it's a service. And it's true on a lot of levels that you know it's not necessarily anymore something you physically buy you may spend money on it but it's more how you spend money on it is more ethereal these days like patreon exists as something you can subscribe to for a lot of artists and you pay a monthly one two five ten dollar donation and those monthly donations come together and that artist release weekly bi-weekly or monthly content for all that money you're investing, and it builds towards an album instead of just a straight-up Kickstarter. Interesting. There's actually a curious little thing that um, one of my favorite YouTubers uh, does. He hosts a live Twitch stream of a homemade RPG, and their stretch goals. As they're twitching, as they're on Twitch doing this stuff, the, the people watching can donate money to cause events to happen. It's one of the most interesting ways I saw for these artists actually making a sort of like a serial television series to raise money for themselves. Mm -hmm. 200 bucks gets uh, a random addition to the encounter. 300 bucks might be a positive thing. 400 bucks might be a negative. And rarely do I see them miss out on like their big stretch goals of like $1,500 when they've already probably raised two, 3000 over the course of like a six-hour live stream. It's a pretty solid way of doing it. Now, granted, they're putting a hell of a lot of work into it, but it's one of the most curious, like, enterprising ideas I've seen in this new market that we're dealing with. Whether it be, like, music or video games or just content producers, it's just they have to find new ways, and it's it seems to be the new ways are... are actually being enabled by a lot of the organizations that are bringing the content to us. Whether it's the Waystation always offering music every night of the week, or if it's the fact that Twitch allows you to donate, there's, there's always these avenues to, instead of having a penalty to go see a band, instead of paying to go see an act, you can instead feel the actual piece and then reward the person creating the piece right well it, it, let's get off the backs of the artists for just a second because you know it does come down to like matt prefaced very clearly obviously once a band or an artist makes a choice to be a career band or artist then it still is kind of their job to make money if they if that is their thing then yeah. that really is their primary goal and you shouldn't you know just put them down for expecting sure. they kind of have the right so let's get off of them for a second and go more toward the listener. Obviously, and I'm going to bring this topic up again, although I'm sure it's come back in previous episodes in other forms, but torrent culture. Most people, especially uh, if you lived or, or spent your adolescence in the decade that was 2000 to 2010, and even still to today, probably built a lot of their libraries on this if they wanted to at least get a certain dosage of music and a well-rounded sense of what was out there without really breaking their backs to do so. 
is this a negative? I mean, we've talked about this before. I feel like... I know it's a broad way of putting it, but flat out, do you think it has helped or hurt? So, I find that with the indie artists that I've befriended or have watched their careers kind of grow, artists that I've gotten into very early on, most of them will always say, download my album if you have to, but then tell everyone you know about it. And I think that in this modern age of networking, Mm. it's let... Yes, if you're taking money out of the hands of the artist, it is detrimental. Period. End of story, it's detrimental. They, You pay for that artist to put food on the table sometimes. But if that album is a touring artist and you don't buy the album, but you tell 30 friends of yours because you're so interconnected in that state where he's touring, go see that show. Trust me, I'm a reliable music source. And they all go spend money on that show, buy merch, hang out with the artist, and then they tell their friends. That can be more valuable. You know, it, it is probably, and this is not like me just copping out, because I pretty much am admitting, of course, I was guilty of doing this back in the day. Sure. I was young in the 2000s, and this was an, a way for me to listen to as much music. As an adolescent, you're not really thinking and about it. And there were the no mo- streaming services back then either. No really. streaming services whatsoever. This is completely pre-Spotify. It worked from Napster up to Kaza, up to LimeWire, and finally just flat out torrent clients. But, you know, as an adolescent, you, you're not really thinking about the grand morality of everything. It's just you yeah. want to consume as much music as possible, and you realize very very early on that there's so much music out there in the world you would never even go through it even if you had like a piddling job working as a as a stock boy or a bag clerk you'd never ever go you know work up that library so when you realize this all right you just start passing around things and i'm not trying to get out of it but i think you bring up a good point like I guess I really was the product, and also I spread the music in terms of like, well, here's here's oh, everyone I know. You know, I I love this band so much. Here, here's all the files. I'm going to dump it on you. We're going to pass it around, to, not through flash drives back in the day, but through flat out hard drives. Uh, recently, hard re- drives. Yeah, f- hard drives. Burn CDs, man. Old school. Wasn't enough for the amount that that we were sort of passing around. Oh man, you were going real illegal. I was going really <laughs> well. I will say that in this particular case, it was my friend who passed it off to me. But it was a fr- friend. He he used to just like, all right, well, all right, you're interested in, in a few bands. Here's a few of my my favorites, right? And he'd dump like 30 gigs of stuff onto a hard drive. <laughs> he'd copy it. He'd pull out the thing out of his computer, detach the IDE cable, and then hand me because I didn't have one an ex an external. Uh, internal hard drive adapter which then can be connected through USB and then I did the same thing to my friends and I a lot of bands became their favorites thereafter a lot of the bands I mentioned over the course of this podcast were from those initial transactions so did they make fans for life I'd say yes through that rather unsavory uh, tactic I mean yeah and I think word of mouth is more powerful than people give credit also credibility is also more reliable than people give credit for and what i mean by that is actually i got an interesting comment the other day i posted photos from warp tour and a friend of mine said something so for those who don't know i very often on my own personal facebook profile and on crash chords when i remember will post a song of the day or a song that's connecting to a quote that's important to me because i feel like it's the fastest and more most Uh, easy way to share music is here's a song here's why I'm sharing it whether it's as simple as this is my song for today I had a friend or have a friend rather named Glenn who uh, is a fan of the podcast of Crash Chords and also a good friend of mine comment on a photo I posted of me and Tatiana from Tap the other day I'll be honest Matt 
I've been looking up every band you post about in your morning posts and all others because I see that you've good taste in such things. So thanks, even if you didn't know, for helping me out. No. I mean, but essentially he's saying because I have a credibility because I have a, a music website and because I post a lot of music. Which is sort of a self-described credibility, but right. you know, three years running, it's got bound to change. But also because I post a lot of music and he's run the gambit of everything I've posted, he's decided, compared to his tastes, whether mine is in line. Yeah. That said, my word of mouth carries weight, and that is as valuable as purchasing the music himself because he now knows what what he might like just based on me saying it and may go out and purchase it on his own. Yeah. Cool. In the end, it really does come down to that personal connection. It's either just based on like what someone learns from another person. I, I think this is infinitely more uh, powerful because money cannot just buy investment on an album or on an artist by itself. That's the thing. You can't just solely rely on that, which is why it is a little bit silly to kind of like put all these restrictions on everybody because in the end, uh, that is really the core of how people will get interested in bands, in artists. That's that's it. It's not about, you know, how much money the thing costs. Like, they'll, they'll get to that, and they will put that money out there, and they will put money out to the concerts eventually, if you can at least get that initial connection, which frankly is well, literally priceless. Yeah, those indie artists, that connection you make on a one-to-one -one level, the reason I am friends and such a fan of Schaefer the Dark Lord is because the first time I ever saw him perform, we spent 20 minutes talking about his work and how he started and all this stuff, and without that personal connection, who knows if I would have liked him as much. Whereas MC yeah. Fun-A-Lot, I heard his music, bought the albums, and then made a personal connection. So it was a different... All roads lead to enjoyment of music if you follow them through. And I think that's kind of... There's no real right answer. Um... Do you have a spam email for us, Steve? Uh, yes, I do. All right. Why don't you? Did you think I didn't? No. Well, it's his job. It so is I his job. You had one me. job, Steve. One job. Uh, among the other jobs he has. The other many. Yes. Uh, this is a um, uh, a segment. A what do you call it? Portion. Clip. 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 Uh, excerpt. Excerpt. There you go. You're welcome. Ampersand number 1091, semicolon, ooh, guys, are you? Ampersand number sign 115, semicolon, you and number 1072. Lee up to. If you, if you edit out the crap, you get, you guys are you. <laughs> and then half a word, up to. Like, tally up to. I don't know. But that, anyway, that's by Power Jumper's Long Bear Dam. You know what? I, th I thought I was the only one that actually said ampersand. You are the only one who says ampersand. He just said it twice. You, you but I he was reading the words of a robot. No, he was reading no, the symbols No, I, I of looked a robot. at the symbol and I called it an ampersand. Oh, okay. That's the, the I thought and the, symbol. I you know why? Because if I, if I were to say the and symbol, then that, to, to me, is the more simplified, just simple, like, you know. Plus sign. Down, yeah, almost like a plus sign with, like, one half connected. Got it. In fact, that's the terminology in math. You usually say and instead of plus for a lot of those things. That's true. Yeah, well, because exactly. plus and negative, like plus and minus mean something different also sometimes. Yeah, and there's, yeah, also, right. there's also the All right, enough less, what are we doing next use week? less instead of minus. Yes, yes, yes. So to connect it back <laughs> to the way station and making those personal connections for bands that you didn't expect to see, our guest next week and our guest for this month, his name is Joe Benjamin, and he is... 
the lead in the band, Joe Benjamin and the Mighty Handful. Um, I had seen them perform at the way station and I was kind of blown away because Joe pretty much plays the conductor slash lead singer role while eight or nine people, and I might be exaggerating a little, but a bunch of people are on stage playing a variety of instruments, brass, woodwind, guitar, drums, it's a whole ensemble, and it's a pretty awesome sight to see on the Waystation stage. Um, I enjoyed them very much, and we'd connected, and I'd given him my card, and he reached out to me to be on the show and was very excited. Also very upset that Andy picked Bell and Sebastian because he was gunning for that one. Uh, but not, <laughs> guess to, warring. not to be outdone, um, he picked something very interesting. Um, a French pop band, as I best understand it, um, their Facebook page describes them as French lyrics plus vocals, accordion, Southern American rhythms, and old Greek movie songs with a bit of jazz. That's hefty, eclectic variety. And so the band is, of course, called Banda Magda. And their last album, the 2013 Amor Tesla, or Tesla. I don't speak French. Tesla. Tesla. Which I think is recent enough to be included in our rating chart. Um, This was his choice. It's uh, available on Bandcamp, so give it a listen. And if you like it, buy it, as we were talking earlier. But that's what we're taking on next week, um, as we will also, of course, feature some of the work of Joe's band. I'm very excited to have him on the show, so that should be a blast. All right. All right. Um, Since I am now sweating through all my clothes and melting to the floor, before I sink below the level of the microphone, remember, everybody, music is life. And and life life is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.